0: Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to The Legal Talk Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Fabiani Duarte, chair of the ABA Law Student Division. I'm a third-year law student at Mercer University's School of Law in Georgia. Our show today is presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads, from finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job. We hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. For today's show, we welcome attorney Patrick Krill, who serves as the director of the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation Legal Professionals Program, based in Minnesota. In that role, he helps addicted attorneys, judges, and law students prepare for and overcome the distinctive challenges they face in their recovery from chemical dependency. As a licensed attorney, board certified alcohol and drug counselor, and graduate level instructor in addiction counseling, Patrick works on issues dealing with behavioral health in the legal profession. Patrick has also undertaken a number of projects aimed at improving the behavioral health of professionals and law students. Of particular note, he conceptualized and developed a nationwide joint research project between the American Bar Association's Commission on Lawyer Assistant Programs and the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, entitled The Prevalence of Substance Use and Other Mental Health Concerns in the Legal Profession. The results of this peer-reviewed study are landmark results, and they were published in January and February of this year, 2016, in the issue of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. In addition to all that work, Patrick also serves on the advisory board of the Dave Nee Foundation, focused on eliminating the stigma associated with depression and suicide in the legal profession and law school. Patrick went to undergrad at American University and received his JD from Loyola Law School. He couldn't get enough of it, so he got two more master's degrees an LLM in LLM and international law from American's Washington College of Law and another master's degree in addiction counseling from the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies. He is a member of the California and Los Angeles County Bar Associations and resides in Minnesota. So welcome, Patrick, to the ABA Law Student Podcast.
2: Thanks, Fabi. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation to be here.
1: No problem. No problem. Well, thank you for letting me uh, share just, just a few highlights of, of your resume and your, your professional journey. So I'm really excited about learning more about this interesting study that you did jointly with the ABA and your office at Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. It's called The Prevalence of Substance Use and Other Mental Health Concerns in the Legal Profession. So what were you trying to, to look at? What motivated you to kick this partnership off?
2: Well, what we were trying to look at were the current rates of substance use, depression, anxiety, and other mental health problems in the legal profession. And really, the genesis of this project, the reason why we undertook this, was because the legal profession didn't have good data on these issues. The last study that was done on these issues was done in 1990, and it was uh, a sample from only one state, Washington state, and it was approximately a thousand lawyers. And that data was actually collected in the late 80s and then reported in 1990. So not only was it limited in scope, it was really old. And, you know, for a point of comparison, the medical profession regularly studies the rates of addiction and depression and anxiety, et cetera, among their population. And they've done dozens of studies over the last couple of decades, whereas we had one for from 1990. And we just weren't doing a good enough job of looking at these issues and understanding how attorneys, judges, and law students were doing. So recognizing that need, seeing that we just didn't have credible, persuasive, or even reliable data, I approached the ABA back in 2013. And I said, hey, You know, what do you think about coming together? We have research scientists on staff here at Hazel and Betty Ford, and you obviously have access to large pools of attorneys. Why don't we come together and do a research project to figure out what's going on in terms of the addiction rates and other mental health rates in the legal profession? We had a sense that lawyers struggled with these problems at a really high rate, but again, we just didn't have any kind of good data that could inform our strategies for dealing with it. So that, that's really how the project came about. I approached the ABA, like I said, in 2013, and they were agreeable. They realized that we did need data and they thought it was a good idea. So we formed a project team. We um, you know, got to work, we designed our survey, and then we started working with various states around the country to begin administering the survey. So that's, that's how that all got started.
1: All right. So you obviously saw that there was a need for, like you said, a credible and persuasive uh, data source. So uh, what kind of questions uh, did you ask and who did you ask them to?
2: Yeah. So good question. Our survey dealt with substance use and other mental health concerns. So we asked about alcohol use. We asked about drug use. We also asked about depression, anxiety, bipolar, all those, uh, a bunch of different mental health concerns. In the survey, was comprised of different instruments that had been used in other contexts and on other populations. So, for example, to measure alcohol use, we used an instrument called the AUDIT-10, which stands for Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test. And that's an instrument that was developed by the World Health Organization to um, measure problem drinking widely used instrument in a lot of settings, very reliable, um, a solid instrument. We used an instrument called the DAS-21, which stands for Depression, Anxiety, and Stress Scale, um, 21-question instrument to measure mental health. And then we used a third instrument to measure drug use. And we ended up recruiting approximately 15,000 lawyers into the study from 19 different states. So a huge data set. And The reason why I mentioned 19 states is because while we didn't obviously have every state, we did have a lot and we had all geographic regions of the country represented in the study. And within that, we also had all sort of population settings. So we had very, um, you know, the highest concentration, highest density settings, such as New York City, L.A., but we also had, you know, rural Kentucky and and Mississippi and those kinds of places as well. So it was a broad study with about 15,000 lawyers who participated.
1: Wow, 15,000. That's pretty remarkable. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of data to sift through so what were some of the findings that, that you came up with? What are some of the issues or notable uh, data points that you were able to pick up from this comprehensive study?
2: Well, let me just tell you in sort of um, a big picture view of it, a global view of it, is that the legal profession has big problems. Uh, we have really significant problems when it comes to our our drinking behaviors and when it comes to our mental health issues specifically we found that the rate of problem drinking, which is defined as hazardous, harmful, or possibly alcohol-dependent drinking, is between 21 and 36%, which is just a staggering, and in my view, completely unacceptable number, and that is multiples of the rate of problem drinking in the general population. In the general population, it's estimated that about 7% of people are problem drinkers, and in our wow. population it 's between twenty one and thirty six um, The level of depression is about twenty eight percent so it 's twenty eight percent of attorneys and I should note that these are licensed currently employed attorneys who are working in the legal profession because we we made the inclusion criteria such that you had to be not only licensed and currently working but working in the profession because we wanted a really good snapshot. Of you know the impact that these issues were having on the profession itself, and not just on people who had maybe gone to law school and gone off and done something else. So, 28% are struggling with some level of depression, either mild, moderate, or severe. 19% are struggling with clinically significant levels of anxiety. Um, so, those were kind of our big picture kind of marquee findings, if you will, that the rates of problem drinking, depression, and anxiety are through the roof. And they're clearly not where you would want a population like this to be. And, you know, we also, we measured drug use as well. I should say we asked about drug use. But one of the interesting things about that, and, you know, it it's speculation as to why this happened, but... Only about a third of the people who completed the survey questions about alcohol use and mental health concerns, only about a third of those people even went near the portion of the survey that dealt with drug use. So that could be interpreted one of two ways. One, it's that, well, maybe lawyers and judges just aren't using drugs. Or more likely, what we think it was, was that even in the context of an anonymous survey, where they couldn't be identified lawyers are just not comfortable disclosing any kind of drug use that could potentially um you know reflect poorly on them or, or get them into trouble so you know we had a much smaller sample that responded to the portion on drug use but within that sample which was about 3000 4000 lawyers the rate of moderately problematic drug use was about 20% so you know we've got problems there too and I should mention that is prescription And illicit drugs. So we're misusing drugs as well, um, but it just wasn't really one of our major findings because we had so much more data on the alcohol and on the depression and on the anxiety.
1: So let's dive in a little bit more deeply. You gave us this big-picture global view, so let's try to take some of these apart. Let's start with, with the drugs. I know you said that that was a, a smaller sample uh, who ended up actually answering those questions, Three to 4,000. Prescription and illicit drugs, what are we talking about exactly, and and what um, in particular did you find about usage in, in that area?
2: Well, the most common prescription drugs that are either being um Abused, well, we're trying to get away from that term uh, abused, but being misused or prescription opioids. So that would be, you know, painkillers, Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycontin, that kind of stuff, Um, but also stimulants. And that's something that we see starting in law school. oftentimes people start using stimulant drugs as almost a, you know to get a competitive advantage or to study harder or something like that. So those are the two prescription drugs that are being misused the most are um, opioids and stimulants. In terms of illicit drug use, it really runs the, it really runs the gamut, you know cocaine, heroin. Um, ecstasy, methamphetamine, all kinds of things. But we really did have very low numbers of reporting around that. And that does not suggest to myself nor to most clinicians who work with this population that illicit drug use is actually going down or is, you know, doesn't exist. It's just that it's really hard to capture data on that in this population who, you know, obviously we're attorneys. We can't, you know, to be admitting in any context that we are using illegal substances is um, highly problematic.
1: So, you know, using drugs is something that unfortunately is uh, pervasive in in some undergraduate settings as well. But uh, you, you especially talked about how opioids and stimulant drugs might be um, something that students start using to perform better or to study harder, you said. Are there other whys as to the use of either the prescription or these illicit drugs? I mean, do all of those off cocaine, heroin, ecstasy, meth, do those offer that same type of edge in performance? Or what are other reasons behind it?
2: Well, well, no, they don't really. I guess the, the, well, we don't have from our data, we don't have, you know, an explanation as to what led somebody to start using whatever substance they were using. So I can only say that generally speaking, the illicit drugs are things that people either make their way to maybe as their prescription drug habit escalates. What we see in society generally right now, I'm sure, you know, if you're paying attention to the news at all, you haven't missed the fact that we are in what some people are calling an opioid epidemic, right? And that's right. starting with people getting hooked on prescription uh painkillers and ending up on heroin. And so you obviously you see that same progression among law students and among lawyers as well. But in terms of of cocaine and and other, you know, party drugs, club drugs, whatever, that I would imagine that the the origins of those of, of someone's use around that is probably more social. But I do want to pivot though, because I think it's not, I don't want it to be lost on your audience that not only did we have more data around alcohol use, alcohol is far and away the drug of choice of the legal profession. So it was, you know, about 90% of people identified that alcohol is their primary drug of substance. So, and that is Drug of choice, rather. Um, So that is really where the bulk of the problem lies. And certainly drug use is nothing that should be ignored, and we need to pay attention to that as well. But the majority of people who are struggling with problematic use in the profession, they're struggling with problematic use of alcohol.
1: Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into that then, into drinking behaviors. Um, What were some of the, I guess, notable findings around that? Uh, Again, I know you said that the study didn't necessarily explain why uh, use was high, but um, what what are some uh, other indications or, or things that we could surmise from your findings?
2: Well, so one of the reasons why I was so thrilled to be talking to you today is because of who your target audience is and how that really aligns with One of our key findings, which was that it is younger attorneys in the first 10 years of practice who are struggling not only with problem drinking, but also with mental health concerns the most. That previously available data, that really old lame data from 1990, um, that suggested that the longer somebody was in the legal profession, the more likely they were to develop an alcohol problem. And that had become, partly because it was the only data that was available, but that had sort of become the um, common wisdom in the profession and uh, certainly among lawyer assistance programs and other professionals who work with struggling attorneys. It was, you know, the longer you're in the profession, the more likely you are to become a problem drinker. Our study turned that finding and that wisdom on its head and did so in a convincing manner. What we found was that it is now younger attorneys, like I said, in the first 10 years of practice who are struggling the most and, you know, the highest rates of problem drinking and the highest rates of depression and anxiety. So, you know, it's a big problem. If you think about somebody trying to break into the profession and really kind of develop as an attorney, and if you have one in three or, or as many as, you know, it's about 40% in some categories. If you have that rate of people who are drinking at problematic levels, you can see how that's going to really handicap their development really into the profession. And the same goes with the mental health concerns. So that's something that we need to pay attention to. And we need to, our strategies need to be informed by the fact that it is now younger attorneys who are struggling the most. That's not to suggest However, that, you know, once you get to 10 years into the practice or 20 years, that our rates of problem drinking became anywhere near normal. That rate, they are still multiples of what they are in the general population. It's just that the most eye-popping numbers were among young attorneys.
1: Right. And so, again, I I don't mean to return to this issue, but... um,
2: You want to know why.
1: I want to know why. Yeah, now that we understand the problem, you've obviously painted up tremendous... Picture for us of just really stark numbers. And, you know, the rate of depression is something that maybe we, we didn't have necessarily the, the numbers for initially, but it's something that I know in my law school and in lots of other law school settings, we're told, you know, we get the counselors in, we meet the counselors, they tell us to fear drinking issues, drug abuse issues, and uh, so they might not have had the studies, but we've had these this warnings, right? So now we have, uh, I guess, more teeth to the uh, precautionary tale that we're, we're being told at least at the law school level so but yeah what what is what do you think are some of the root causes for this why well before i answer
2: that if you don't mind me let me ask you uh, do you think people were paying attention to those messages (laughs) in your experience or sort of taking them with a grain of salt
1: well i know i can speak for myself and, and people that are close to me that they might think one of two things like one that's not going to be me, right? Yep. Especially since it happens during the first week of school, usually. Or maybe they bring him in again during exams. But you know, I, I'm not going to be the one that's going to be struggling. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the resource, but maybe that's ignored and you take the magnet and put it on your, your refrigerator. Uh, yep. Or then, if somebody is struggling with it, just the shame in either, you know, coming forward to do that or the issue with self-reporting, which a lot of bar, or maybe all bar associations require as you prepare to take the bar exam, is something that seems very... Um, very challenging for a lot of students that I've talked to. You're outing yourself, but it's private, but the bar knows, and it's better if you do it uh, than if you don't, but if you don't, nobody's ever going to know, so why are you going to do it? So it's that sort of conflict, the secrecy that, that surrounds it kind of, underscores the stigma that people with either mental health or other issues might face. So it's a, it's a lot of contradictions, I feel, that law students navigate. And so a way to just avoid the issue is by just not dealing with it or ignoring it themselves.
2: Well, you, I mean, you've got a really keen understanding of these issues, because that's exactly right. And the fact is, well, first of all, not all law schools, I should say, <clears throat> As a threshold comment, not all law schools really are doing a good enough job of even getting the counselors or getting the message in front of students. There are some schools that just you know want to take a head in the sand approach to this, and there is nothing like a uniform approach, right? It's not like there's so much inconsistency from one law school to the next, from one jurisdiction to the next, and which is really what you find once you get into the profession as well. But, you know, even if students do get the messaging, they do tend to think, well, this isn't going to happen to me. I'm in control, right? I've got to prove myself. I'm going to do a great job. I can handle these things. And then if they do begin to experience any level of distress or maybe they have any warning bells going off, they are petrified generally of really letting anybody know because they don't want to be perceived as defective or weak or, you know, they can't cut it. And they certainly don't want to implicate their potential license in any way, right? So there is this fear of of reaching out for help, of even getting an assessment and figuring out what's going on with you. But then on top of that, you look at the messaging around alcohol that is really present in the legal profession. Heavy drinking is normalized, beginning in law school. And certainly, continuing over into the profession, so you look around and say you're somebody who is beginning to experience some level of concern about well, you know I've been hung over a lot lately, or I've been drinking too much or I'm feeling kind of depressed. You look around and you just see that so normalized and it 's easy to kind of just keep kicking the can down the road and assuming that this too shall pass, or you know i'm fine, I got this. And even if I don't have this, I can't let anybody know. And I think that's a big problem. And in terms of the law school experience specifically, what I think we need to do is really implicate Law students' GPAs in this. In order to really arrive at a solution and to really chart a course forward that's going to be different, we need to be tested. Law students should be tested on them. De- you know, they should have to demonstrate some level of general familiarity with the warning signs of substance misuse. You know, of of addiction, the warning signs of depression, anxiety, etc. All of the sort of behavioral health issues. I think that it should be a one credit course in Ohio, this is interesting. You have to pass an exam on those issues uh, before you can sit for the bar. And I think that's a really proactive approach. And I think if we were doing that nationwide and if there was some level of uniformity around that, we'd probably see people coming into the profession with a lot more real, tangible appreciation for the pitfalls that might be ahead of them if they don't pay attention to this stuff. And then, you know, Certainly once people are in the profession, firms, especially uh, law firms, they really just need to do a better job of reducing the prevalence of heavy drinking and and trying to decouple alcohol from – everything in the profession seems to involve alcohol in one way or another. And that's something that I certainly experience, but it's something that I hear from you know, the patients that I work with, it's something that I hear from basically everybody in the profession who's willing to have an honest conversation with me around these issues tells me, yeah, of course. Like drinking goes hand in hand with being a lawyer. And until we call it what it is and, and take some steps to to unwind that culture a little bit, I, I'm not sure we're necessarily gonna make much progress.
1: So it's interesting you, you mentioned, you know, just how much alcohol is woven into the legal culture. I think about, you know, a lot of the young lawyer events that I get to attend, um, or that, you know, law students are frequently invited to, especially in in the summers when we're doing internships or externships, you know, it's always the happy hour gathering or a a cocktail uh, setting, right, Uh, reception. And, And I wonder... How do you how do you do that decoupling? I mean, it's almost like like golf, right? Uh, I don't know how many people have told me you got to learn to play golf if you're going to be a good attorney. It's just one of those special tools where you connect with people, get new clients, and and have this sort of sophisticated interaction with people. I'm a terrible golfer, and I, I still have the golf clubs here <clears> in my apartment. But uh, uh, so the same thing with alcohol; it just comes with the territory. I mean, that, those are the the things. How do we? I guess, how do we change that culture? You say we need to do that. Do we bring in more fruit juices or something? Or or do we, um, what, what, do you, what are your some recommendations?
2: Well, you know, we're going to get there really through trial and error. And there will inevitably be some growing pains, you know, figuring that out, how the profession actually gets there. Like I said, trial and error, we're going to have to, to be innovative in that regard. But the bottom line is that business as usual just isn't going to cut it. And you know, sometimes I actually think that the reason why there weren't any studies for the last 25 years on these issues is because the profession as a whole just hasn't wanted to deal with them. It's been easier for us to ignore these issues. And now that this study was published and it's gotten a fair amount of attention and there does seem to be a re-energized dialogue about these issues, my hope is that we won't just Sweep it back under the rug and that we are going to have to really address these. Because think about the impact, Fabi, that these rates of problem drinking or rates of mental health problems, think about the impact that that is having on people's fitness to practice. Think about the impact that that is having on people's overall well-being. You know, just from a humanist perspective, think how many people are struggling with these issues. But then also think about the impact that it's having on the public that we serve and those impacts are pretty profound. So however we get there, we need to get there. And I, I would say it's incumbent upon not only leaders within bar associations, but certainly within law firms and within law schools to really start devoting time, energy, and resources to figuring this out and to figuring out how they are going to you know, make some progress here. And it's not just about taking alcohol out of all of the events. Because the reality is, alcohol is part of our society, and and a lot of people can drink and not experience any problems with it, and you know, so we alcohol is not going to go away, nor should it. But it really it can be dialed back. I was on Minnesota Public Radio about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago at this point, doing an interview about this study, and I was talking with the host. It was a long conversation. He ended up taking some calls, and we had a caller from a, a law school here in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and she identified herself as a 3L law student, and she said that she um, doesn't drink because she's Muslim, so she doesn't drink for cultural, religious reasons. And she finds that it is actually impairing her ability to kind of get into the profession, and it's, she's uncomfortable going to all these networking events and, and trying to find internships. And she's always being invited to happy hour, this happy hour, that. And I think that's, you know, that's something we need to pay attention to as well from just a cultural sensitivity and diversity issue. Sometimes people just don't drink. And if you feel like you kind of have to drink the way that you should probably learn how to play golf just to come into the profession, that's not good. And you know that's something that we need to really take a look at and figure out how do we do something differently.
1: Hmm. One of those things that you mentioned to do differently is that Ohio model of having to pass an exam to be able to um, note the telltale signs of depression or alcohol abuse or even drug use. And, and I know you're trying to move away from the word abuse. So what's better lingo that you recommend using? And then what are some questions that you think here on the air we could practice answering that you think are, are key answers that law students and our listeners should be able to have in their back pockets?
2: Well, you know, I think in terms of the language, um, there's just sort of a movement in the um, certainly in the treatment, recovery, mental health fields to try and move away from what is oftentimes perceived as stigmatizing language, like calling somebody an alcoholic or an addict rather than saying a person with an alcohol use disorder or you know, a drug use disorder, a substance use disorder. Um, And so abuse, right, it's generally now viewed as being a term that kind of automatically pulls up a negative connotation like a child abuser or something else abuser. So, But really what it is is misuse. Substances in and of themselves have no moral properties. They're neither good nor bad. It's really the way that somebody uses them. And if you're misusing a substance, that's when you tend to get into trouble. And let me just say really quickly before I get to your second question, the 21 to 36% of licensed currently employed attorneys who are problem drinkers, that is not to say that all of those people are alcoholics or that all of those people necessarily need to stop drinking. What it is saying is that 21 to 36% are drinking at levels that are hazardous, harmful, and may be possibly alcohol dependent. So they are certainly drinking at risky levels. Now, a fair amount of those people probably do have just straight up alcohol use disorders and really do need to stop drinking, but not all of them. Some of those people might just be in a danger zone and they're really kind of drinking in a way that is just not good for them physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you know, in a lot of different ways. And that brings me back to your question about what sort of questions should we have in our back pocket? Sure. One would be, you know, really just how much am I drinking? And what is a normal, healthy amount to drink or, you know, I guess you wouldn't really ever suggest someone take a prescription drug other than prescribed, but also it's important to look at, you know, why are you using substances? What is their role in your life? Are you using them to cope with stress? Are you using them to be able to function? What is really the role of these substances in your life? And then beyond that, I think it's important for law students to really have a clear picture of what are some of the warning signs. What are some of the signs and symptoms of an alcohol use disorder? What are some of the signs and symptoms of a depressive episode? That's one piece of it.
1: So what would you say? What would you say like three for each of those for an alcohol disorder or for a mental health issue?
2: Well, I think one thing in terms of an alcohol use disorder would just be volume and frequency, right? Like how much are you drinking? And is that, is that above what are generally accepted levels that, you know, published levels that are deemed healthy? But then I think the other thing would be, you know, what impact is this having on your life? Are you missing obligations as a result of it? Are you finding yourself preoccupied? How much time are you spending either procuring the substance using it or recovering from its effects? You know, is it difficult for you to cut down or stop using it? So really looking at at those types of things. In terms of, of mental health, right, it's having an understanding of how long you've been feeling a certain way. What is the extent of those feelings? Are they situational? Do they appear to be transient? And really just kind of knowing the warning signs for when something might be leading somebody down a dark mental path and they don't even realize it. Beyond that, though, what I think is almost as important as being able to recognize the warning signs of any of these issues is being able to, uh, you know, having some level of familiarity with what are available resources. So what do you do when you are starting to feel this way or think this way? and just just having a command, really, having a command of the resources that are out there.
1: So I'm wondering, as you developed uh, this study that was, you know, 25 years past you, if besides your uh, hunger for answering some of those questions, if there was some other personal motivation to uh, making mental health, alcohol disorder uh, statistics, drug use statistics, so front and center for you, was there something that uh, was an impetus to this investigation, for you?
2: Well, not to this. Um, it's a good question. There wasn't a personal impetus to this research project, but there was at least an indirect personal connection with my um, transitioning into this field in the first place. I'm somebody who's been sober a long time, and so I am I'm openly in recovery, and that you know that certainly informed my decision to. Um, to go back to school and get a master's degree in addiction counseling. At the time, I was considering making a career change for a variety of reasons. And, you know, based on my own personal experience of having been in recovery for a number of years at that point, I thought, you know, I want to explore this field. So I got a master's degree in addiction counseling. And then I really did make the decision to kind of marry my two professional backgrounds at that point now as being a licensed alcohol and drug counselor um, with my experience as a practicing attorney and obviously as a law student before that. So indirectly, that, you know, my personal experience probably led me towards this field. But in terms of the study itself, really what led me to reach out and to instigate this study and to make sure that we got good, incredible data was my frustration as an academic and as a clinician. And you know, just as somebody who's working in this field, my frustration with not having good data, and I can tell you a really quick story that's, I think, kind of funny. Sure. About a year into my job here, I was writing, it may have even been for an ABA publication, I don't remember where I was writing it for. I was writing an article on the rates of addiction, depression in the legal profession, and I cited the 1990 data, which was all that I had to cite. And a few weeks after that article was published, I got a call from a senior partner at a large, large East Coast law firm who really just read me the riot act out of the blue, never met this person, had no idea who he was, Um, calls me on my office phone and, and really just kind of reams me out about the fact that I was writing this article, which reflected poorly on the legal profession. And I was citing data from 1990. And how could I be doing that? You know, that's not credible. Nobody likes to get a call like that, but after I got off the phone, I thought, well, you know, I can objectively say he has a fair point, right? But that was the only data that was available, so what else was I going to cite to? I obviously couldn't cite to my personal opinion on the matters. So that was kind of the seed that was planted in me, and I said, yeah, you know, we don't have credible data. And then I started looking at the medical profession, and I saw what they were doing, and they're just running laps around us because they recognize that there is an obligation on the part of a licensed profession to take these issues seriously and to really have an understanding of what's going on with the people that they're licensing and regulating. So the medical profession, like I said earlier in our interview, they've done dozens of studies on these. So that led me to, you know, just kind of go through my Rolodex, figure out who I knew at the ABA, and I started making calls, and I started moving this project forward. And, you know, now we're, now we're in an interesting place because, like I said, we're having a lot of dialogue about this, and I have been invited to talk to some pretty uh, important groups within the profession, and that's continuing. And it seems like there is going to be um, – a heightened level of interest in these issues for a while. And that's gratifying. I'm glad to be kind of at the center of hopefully moving the needle a little bit.
1: How would you say would be a good way for students, if, for example, we could go back to um, meet the 1L version of you, Patrick, and and saw him at Loyola Law School, what would you, um, you know, pull him aside and, and tell him to do when it comes to just entering law school, preparing to dive into the legal market? Besides some of the tips and tools you've talked about, like uh, you know, having command of resources uh, and maybe knowing some warning signs, what are some just pieces of advice you would give 1L Patrick Krill?
2: Well, I think one of the global pieces of advice that I would give really just has to do with overall wellness and balance, right? Um, Because if you're a law student and you're living this really sort of balanced, harmonious life and you're practicing lots of self-care, chances are you're maybe not doing that well in law school. I don't know. But so that really is the law school experience where we just start kind of losing our balance, not taking care of ourselves. And that can lead to, you know, if somebody maybe already has a bit of a drinking problem or if maybe somebody already has some level of depression, that can really exacerbate the problem. But for for other people, you know, they're a 1L out there who maybe has never drank problematically or never experienced any kind of depression, you know, when they just go from zero to 60 and, it, and it's just this high stakes, high stress environment and they stop having any kind of balance or wellness in their life, that can lead to the onset of these problems and somebody who might have otherwise never had a problem. And so I think on a global level, it's really just take care of yourself and pay attention to these things obviously fabi that sets up an immediate tension right because as i said if you're practicing lots of self care you might not be doing well in law school but i think students need to have an appreciation for that and to pay attention to it and just be smarter about the way they're living their lives and realize that the choices that you're making as a law student are going to have implications for the rest of your life and it's not just about you know what firm you apply to but it's also you know how are you living your life and taking care of yourself and are you really setting yourself up for any kind of sustainable success or are you starting down a path of really um, unhealthy behaviors that could potentially derail you or cause you some level of headache or problem or or something even worse. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat any of this because the reality is there's, you know, frequently there are catastrophic ends to somebody's untreated mental health issues or their untreated addiction issues. You know, there's a lot of suicide in the legal profession. There's a lot of lawyers who lose their licenses as a result of, um, you know, untreated alcoholism or drug addiction. So it's not just about feeling well and, and being clear headed. It's also, you know, you have to watch out for what could come if you let these things really get a hold of you.
1: So, Patrick, you've given us a lot definitely to think about, and especially since you come on a foundation of hard numbers and scientific study. For a lot of law students who are reading through a lot of material already, um, what do you think would be the, the biggest takeaways then for them from this study that they could probably keep in the back of their heads as they um, go into their next final? This is exam season right now, as they either gear up for their summer job opportunity uh, or for another year in law school or for people like me who are about to graduate in just a couple of weeks. What do you think are those final takeaways that we should be leaving this podcast with?
2: Well, I think the final takeaways are, you know, to pay attention to your overall level of wellness and pay attention to how you're managing stress, Um, pay attention to your goals. And if your goal is to really come into the profession and to be a successful and effective attorney, you know, there's a real correlation there between your level of, of health and how well you can do in the profession. So I guess, you know, the final takeaways are to just take care of yourself, really, and be aware that you're, you're, going to be coming into a profession where dysfunctional coping mechanisms, problem drinking, and, and what have you are going to be highly normalized around you. And you need to kind of be on guard about letting any of those sort of behaviors influence your own path or lead you down a path that you know you don't want to be going down. So, And then as a final thought, really, if you have any level of concern about your behaviors. If there's a voice somewhere in your head that's telling you something maybe is a little bit out of control or you need to dial something back or make some level of lifestyle modification, talk to somebody, avail yourself of some of the resources that are out there and get a little bit of help. Not everybody needs to go to treatment. Not everybody needs to be in therapy, but sometimes just a little bit of brief intervention, a, a little bit of brief counseling or at a minimum, some education around these issues can really make a big difference.
1: Do you have a, um, a website or a anonymous hotline that you think would be useful for our students besides the resources at schools or, or people that they might know that they can just go to in case they're, they're curious? And a lot of this relies on like self-monitoring and self, uh, self-starting, you know? Is there an easy, quick resource that you have in the back of your mind that, that would be useful for our
2: listeners? Well, I would direct them to a couple of websites. One, you you could obviously check out my bio page on Hazel and Betty Ford. I have a lot of resources there. But really more globally, because I'm assuming that students from all across the country or young attorneys from all across the country will be listening to this podcast. So, Given the fact that they might be coming from a variety of states, I would direct them to the American Bar Association Commission on Lawyer Assistance Program. So, Google ABA Colap. You'll find, and maybe you can attach a link to the podcast. I don't know. Colap has a directory of the lawyer assistance programs in every state so then you can link to the lawyer assistance program in your own state and from there you'll find a lot of resources and most lawyer assistance programs the name is actually a little bit misleading because they're also law student assistance programs so they work with lawyers and judges but they also work with and provide resources to law students because the reality is if you're a law student you're part of the profession, too, and we're trying to bring you in in a way that is going to set you up for success. So I would start with the lawyer assistance programs and go from there. And these
1: programs, do you keep confidentiality and it's an anonymous basis, or uh, is there anything that students have to either or fear, or do they have to share information about themselves, or how, how do they work? To... They,
2: they don't. Um, it varies from state to state. In terms of exactly how confidentiality is guaranteed or set up, but the reality is that these services are almost universally 100% confidential. You know, with a small exception, if somebody's like perhaps a danger to themselves or others, you know, there would be a duty to report as there would be in any um, mental health setting. Sure. But these are confidential settings, um, these are confidential services, rather, and, you know, students shouldn't be concerned about reaching out for help, it's better to get ahead of it than to have it become a problem that you can't get your arms around and that might, you know, lead to you having problems that are way bigger than you could have anticipated. So my advice is to be proactive around these issues. And at the first sign of a problem, talk to somebody, get help, get confidential help, and it'll be time well spent.
1: Well, Patrick, before we wrap up our time here, I would like to ask you one last question, one that we usually ask uh, most of our guests, and uh, that's uh, something that's a little more personal. And what would you say your life's motto would be? Um, How would you put your calling into words? Is there a mantra that you say to yourself every morning or that you reach for uh, in difficult moments or successful moments? Do you have um, a life's motto that you'd like to share with our listeners today?
2: Um, you know, that's a good question. It's not, I I certainly don't think of that very often, but, you know, I guess if I had to say I would be, you know, be true to yourself and, and that's something that is certainly informed my own path. and, And I would say probably informs my, my daily work and the way I live my life. Just be true to yourself and to your own values and your own ethics and your own morals and just kind of your own self.
1: All right. Well, Patrick Krill, thank you so much for this really awesome interview, for a great conversation, for just everything you've shared with us today. I really, really am grateful for the time uh, you were able to spend with us.
2: Hey, Fabi, it was my pleasure. Nice to chat with you.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, besides finding you on your website, do you have a Twitter account or uh, another way that's easy for our listeners to reach out to you at?
2: Um, it really, I, I do. I have a very underutilized Twitter account. I believe it's at PR Krill. But my email address is, uh, and I'm happy to put that on the podcast, it's p-k-r-i-l-l at hazeldenbettyford.org. And anyone's free to, to reach out to me there.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much, Patrick. I really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Thanks. Bye.
1: We hope you've enjoyed another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. We'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes. And once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review us as well. You can also tweet to us at abalsd and use hashtag lawstudentpodcast to tell us what's on your mind. I'm at Fabiani Duarte, and I want to thank you for listening. Work hard, play smart,
0: and until next time, podcasters. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit legaltalknetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBard.org forward slash lawstudent. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network,